all the time about the fact that like, if I'm asked to like name my favorite environmentalist, I always say my grandma. And I know that if my grandma was alive, she would never say she was an environmentalist. But anybody that's like rinsing out a sandwich bag and taking the coffee grounds and fertilizing her collard greens um, in the garden and doing passing clothes down from like four generations, um, is, that's environmentalism. That's sustainability, right? And so I think we have to not get caught up in the buzzwords of it all. Um, that this is something that we have a legacy of doing and it's part of our culture too. Hello and welcome to Lakes Chat, the show that dives into all things Great Lakes. I'm your host, Jennifer Caddick with the Alliance for the Great Lakes. In today's episode, we're looking at the legacy of black farming and water stewardship. We recorded this conversation last month as part of a webinar organized for Black History Month. My colleague, Crystal Davis, digs into the history of black farming, the connection to land and water, and thoughts on the future of Black environmentalism. I will uh, turn it over to my colleague, Crystal Davis, who is the Alliance for the Great Lakes Vice President for Policy and Strategic Engagement. She's going to be facilitating the conversation today. And Crystal, I'll hand it over to you to introduce our panelists and get the conversation going. Thank you so much, Jen. It is my absolute pleasure and honor to be amongst these panelists today for this conversation. Uh, this topic is personal to me. I've uh, talked extensively about the fact that I come from a, a legacy of black farmers um, in Starkville, Mississippi. And so I'm really excited um, to have this conversation and especially in relation to our work here at the Alliance um, as it relates to water issues. And so um, I'm happy to be joined by uh, Kevin, Dr. Kevin Magruder, who's Associate Professor of History at Antioch College. Um, his interest in community formation led to a career in community development and now as an academic uh, to research interests that include African-American institutions, urban history, um, and gay and lesbian history. He has a BA in economics from Harvard and an MBA in real estate finance from Columbia University uh, before pursuing his doctoral studies um, at City University of New York. Magruder um, worked for many years in the field of nonprofit community development and positions included program director at local initiatives, support corporation, director of real estate development, and um, his accolades go on and on and on. So um, he, it's definitely a pleasure to have him with us today. We also have Timothy Lewis, founding partner and outreach director for Riddle Green Partnership right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, Tim has been a part of Riddle since 2009, where he discovered his passion for sustainability. Um, for over 10 years, he was mentored by the late Damien Forche. Um, Founder and CEO and Dave, Dr. Greenhand Hester, co-founder. He's a 99 graduate of Cleveland Heights High School and an 08 graduate of Cleveland School of Broadcasting. He served in retail and marketing and um, several positions. Um, in 2018, he led Riddle Partnership um, participation in the Do Something Day, an event that focused on the nation's commitment to honor the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, he is the founder of the Green in the Ghetto Youth Movement. And I can say for him as well, the accolades go on and on locally and nationally respected uh, for his work in this industry. So it is my pleasure to be joined with you both today. 
So let's get into the questions, get into the discussion. Um, I'll start with saying that um, I worked with my colleague, Michelle Farley, on this, and we talked about what this um, forum should be called. And so we came up with the legacy of Black farming and water stewardship intentionally um, because of the history of Black farming in the U.S. And it goes deep and it's rooted in pain, progress, and eventual uh, profit. Um, Dr. Magruder, could you give us some brief historical context on this for this conversation? Our industry didn't um, just end at slavery. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, picking up on your last phrase there, often when we think about African-American, our farming legacy, we do tend to think about the years after the Civil War. Um, which are important to understand. Uh, but there's uh, more recent research that shifts that perspective. And I want to put a plug in for this book. It's called The Bone and the Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. And it's by Annalisa Cox, a historian. It came out in 2018. And what she's looking at is Black farming communities in the Midwest from the mid 1700s to the early 1800s, there were over 300 black farming communities in the Midwest during that period. And most of us don't know anything about that. And there's some good reasons for it. It has to do with this legacy. And, you know, some struggled, like that's part of farming, some prospered. But what she talks about is as European settlers, people of European descent come into the area, Americans who are of European descent, particularly after the nation is formed, they resent, many of them resent these prosperous black farmers and are hostile to them. And in many cases, drive them out. And so often when we think about the Midwest, kind of when people talk about that being maybe the farm belt or that, it's a white face that we think of as the pioneers. And what she's saying is there were black people in that group as well. And so that's one part that I think it's really important for us to understand. That legacy of slavery is also important too. And so, you know, every, all of the original states had slavery, but by the 1830s, once cotton becomes the cash crop and the cotton gin is invented, that as much cotton as you can grow, you can sell. And that restricts, restricts farm growth for cash crops to those Southern states. And that's the, the chattel slavery that we're most familiar with. When the Civil War happens, those are the people who were trying they're the ones who really set the stage for that war to happen because they their labor source was being endangered by the growing cries for abolition. That's why the war happens. When it ends, even before it's over, there are steps being taken to provide for a black, free black farmers. And so that phrase, 40 acres and a mule, which Spike Lee names his production company after, that comes from field order number 15, uh, which is put in place in the early months of 1865 as 
the Union Army is making more progress in the South. They get to the coast. Uh, Sherman, uh, General Sherman is the one who is, he does his march to the sea, drives people off of those plantations in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Those plantation owners abandon that land and Sherman says, and they all often abandon the enslaved people. He creates field order number 15 saying, we're gonna divide that land up into 40 acre plots and turn it over to these people to farm. And that's what begins happening in early 1865. The war ends in May of that year or April of that year. And Andrew Johnson, with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, Andrew Johnson becomes president. He is a racist. And you have these black people on these farms. And by the fall of that year, right when they're doing their harvest, he tells them they have to get off the land. And because he doesn't want them to get this land, he doesn't want to set a precedent. And that's what happens. And so that betrayal that black farmers are experiencing to this day has long roots. After that, they continue throughout the South to try to find opportunities to get land. And so when I look at my own family's history, which on my father's side, it's, it's in Alabama. In the 1890s, my great-grandfather, Charles Magruder, buys 300 acres of land in an area that's now called Sawyerville, Alabama. And that's where my family grows in the latter part of the 1800s. And when we look at statistics from that time, there are a lot of black farmers who are doing that. The census reports, there's a, a table that looks at farm operators from 1900 to 1997. And in 1900, there are almost 750 black farm, 750,000 black farmers. By 19, 97, there are only 18,000 black farmers. So that shows the drop. If we compare that to white farmers, who we know there's been a decline in farming overall, there's about 5 million white farmers in 1900. By 1997, it's about 1.9 million. So it's a drop, but not nearly as dramatic. And so when we look at what's behind that, some of it is the bull weevil destroying crops, crop price dropping. But some of it is the challenges of transferring that land across generations. And that's what I saw in my family. We held on to it through the depression. Um, we stopped farming it in the 40s, really. Um, but they continued to rent out the land. And then really in the last five years, that my father's generation who were in the 80s and 90s started selling off pieces of it and then some family members bought it so we still do have family links to the land but not what what i would have liked um right. and so there are variations of that in other areas that we see and so you know when we look at this history it's it's definitely part of our culture and to your point about protection of land so if you're going to leave land to your children, your grandchildren, you don't want to leave land that has been destroyed. <laughs> you want to protect it. And so there is a, a real incentive for family owned farms to really take care of that land. 
Yeah. Thank you for that uh, historical context. I think it's important because um, when we talk about equity and environment and sustainability nowadays, it seems like these are, we, we almost talk about them like they're new concepts. And it's important to note that we're not new to this. We're true to this. This is something that um, is a part of who we are and a part of our, our legacy. So um, I think that context is always important when you start to have a conversation like this. Um, the Riddle Green Partnership is a respected titan in Cleveland. You don't hear Cleveland and farm and green without talking about Riddle um, and beyond, beyond Cleveland. Um, I'm always moved by hearing about the origin story of the farm and as it was a response to community needs. Um, agriculture was used to address few, uh, food deserts and blight. Um, Tim, can you share a little bit about the background story and how you got involved in the, the um, about the farm? So, um, I, and thank you, Doctor, for that for that you know that that background because I'm linked into the camera when my face grunged up because I'm seeing a transition of why farming numbers have started to decline on the back end of things. So, uh, but Crystal, to um, ask you a question. Um, Red All Green Partnership, uh, the original founders, Damien Forche, uh, Randall McShepard, Kimai Durden, um, allowed me to come in and really just tap into something that hadn't been tapped into from a perspective. This was the first time as a young black man, I was able to see something go from a conversation to a meeting, from a meeting to a blueprint, from a blueprint to actually acquiring land to acquiring land to actually developing. So once they said we could, we did. So um, the overall tone was to not only uh, come with a solution to help solve some of the problems with food deserts, but also grow relationships and just raise more awareness of what sustainability looks like from a, a colored standpoint. You know what I mean? Colored is, is just people from different backgrounds and diversity groups that come together to try to really see how they fit into the bigger picture. So not only are we growing uh, food, but we're growing relationships to get people fit into this bigger picture so we can have hubs across the United States, not even the United States, but across the world to introduce um, not even urban agriculture, but just reintroduce agriculture as a whole from a perspective of just being in the inner city, being able to grow. Uh, we are now up to 22 acres throughout the city of Cleveland in our campus and um, just the, the latest addition is a farm to plate restaurant. So just being able to just really introduce people to what sustainability looks like from a different capacity that they might not be used to seeing. Thank you for that. And thank you for your work on that. Um, I'm looking forward to getting out to one of the fish fries. Um, heard it. <laughs> yeah, must, must attend event over there. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you both know I'm working in the policy realm and um, a lot of times there's this perceived tension between agriculture and environmentalists. And um, it always it makes it feel like there's like you, there's mutual exclusive. Like you can't you can't be both an environmentalist and someone who appreciates farms or works on farms or has a legacy of farming. Can you talk a little bit about um this notion and about being both, because there has to be some kind of link. And I know uh, Kevin can talk about this too, the cultural connection that we have to um, our natural resources in our land. 
I feel like it's important to, to bring both of those parties together because we all have a common concern. And that common concern is just the earth. You know what I'm saying? Whether we're talking about water or crop deficiency or uh, soil deficiency. So that common ground of finding that knowledge and where we can just meet in the middle and have, you know, more um, impactful discussions on not having to make it split down the middle, but really just sitting at the table to bring a stronger conversation of what can we attack as a group together? What's that one thing that we can collectively agree upon to try to push the agenda forward? So you don't see such a divide when you're coming from a social media standpoint or um, the career path. So showing the importance of being able to merge both and have both at the table. So that way you can see another perspective that might be able to help you further along in your research and just obtaining more knowledge uh, to really just uh, strengthen the studies that are you know being found out in these times that we're living in. I also think if if one does a cost benefit analysis that really incorporates long range planning, being careful about the environment is to the benefit of a farmer. That those who decry environmental protection, they're thinking a year, they're thinking a couple seasons out, but if we go back to kind of the earlier farmers, particularly the indigenous people, they have a concept where they're doing things for seven generations, you know, planning for seven generations forward. So if you're doing, if you're thinking in that way, you want to protect what's going to go forward. When we look at the world we're living in now, there's almost no way <laughs> that the way we're doing things could be said, you know, it might not even help our grandchildren, <laughs> let alone, you know, that far out. And so there's a, I think there's an argument that can be made that it's to the benefit, the long-term benefit of people who want to make money <laughs> to be sure that the practices that they are undertaking are protecting the environment. And a little bit um, to, to go with that, um, Doc, is also showing the relationship and the resources that you still can find revenue in it because you need revenue just to be able to sustain these next two generations, let alone seven. So being able to just really cultivate a conversation wrapped around what does it look like from a resource standpoint, because you do need resources. And once again, that's how those two teams can meet in the middle with balancing that thing out or being more um cautious about how they go about some of the practices that they use and slowing some of the things down and just taking more of a, a sustainable approach in totality. Sure. I thank you both for that. I think, I think all the time about the fact that like, if I'm asked to like name my favorite environmentalist, I always say my grandma. And I know that if my grandma was alive, she would never say she was an environmentalist, but anybody that's like rinsing out a sandwich bag and taking the coffee grounds and fertilizing her collard greens um, in the garden and doing passing clothes down from like four generations. Um, it, that's environmentalism. That's sustainability. Right. And so I think we have to not get caught up in the buzzwords of it all, um, that this is something that we have a legacy of doing. And it's part of our culture, too. So I, with it being Black History Month, I just felt like we had to lift that up. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, when I think of the Magruder land in Alabama, 
even after they stopped farming it, they they rented it out. And by the time I really became aware of the farm in the 80s, they were harvesting timber, but they were doing it in a common sense way. They weren't clear cutting everything. They were, you know, selectively harvesting so that they could continue to grow things. And, and, and there's a river that goes through that land. They were mindful of what's going into that river. All of, But I agree, like my cousin Juan, who still lives on the land, if I said he's an environmentalist, I don't know that he would say that, but he's doing that. And he knows he's doing that. Right, right. And so with the Alliance for the Great Lakes, we are uh, hyper-focused on water and the people that depend on them are our Great Lakes, our, nat- our greatest natural resource. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of water stewardship with all of this? I know that we're a part of policy conversations where we're talking about agricultural runoff. And that's, again, that's not the the mom and pop old McDonald farms that we're talking about. We're talking about large scale agricultural operations. And there is a need to make sure that we protect these waters. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that at all? Well, um, from a historical standpoint and a biblical standpoint, water has always been the way. So water has been like a way of freedom and being able to just um, help us just carry on to that next day. Sometimes it might just be fast and having that water to carry you over. And the other connection is more so understanding the, the bigger piece of why it's important for us to be good stewards of the land. I know when we first got our uh, first piece of property down there, at Riddle, we didn't have access to the fire hydrant. So, um, I mean, by the grace of God, literally almost every other day, it would rain for at least two hours. And we had these 15 gallon rain barrels and they would allow us to uh, water our crops. And it was enough water in each, we had six 15 gallon rain barrels and it was enough rainwater in there to be able to help us water our crops in that process. So. Without the water, you really don't have a, a form of uh, life when it comes to just being able to just sustain from a, a growing standpoint and I mean a physical standpoint. So the importance of water, when you even talk about what we do a little bit, not even a little bit, I'm sorry, what we do on a bigger scale with uh, farm-raised tilapia, being able to keep a consistent flow in our agriculture department and aquaponics setup. So being able to have those fish and those plants coexist. So water definitely is a major component of what we do on the daily down there, especially when you're talking about the uh, shift of the seasons, being able to get in, get out, and sometimes being having to uh, have the convenience of watering crops up to like six to seven hours a day just to make sure things are being able to sustain themselves down there. So water is the biggest component of freedom and just being able to just, you know, move on with uh, the way of life. And also we have to remember that what happens in the agricultural arena affects the metropolitan areas. So I live in Yellow Springs, Ohio now, southwest, which is in Southwest Ohio, but I'm from Toledo in Northwest Ohio. And I don't know if you remember, it was maybe within the last five years, they had a no, they had a boil water, actually it was a no drink water uh, <laughs> alert because of algae blooms in, I guess it was Lake Erie and around there. And that was because of my understanding, it was because of agricultural runoff. And so, you know, we may, farmers may think that this is just their issue, but what they're doing 
is affecting people who don't have anything to do with farms. And so they've got a responsibility that goes far beyond them growing crops or raising livestock, that what they're doing is affecting the broader community around them. And, and um, you know, I, I'm 64 and I don't remember that ever happening in Toledo before. Yeah, yeah thank you for highlighting that. Um, agricultural runoff, algae blooms in the Western basin of Lake Erie, selling over a water intake, aging infrastructure, it just created this storm that uh, impacted us in, in reverberating ways. I, I know I work closely with uh, uh, on the ground groups like uh, Junction Coalition in Toledo who, who were on the front lines of the fight of making sure that uh, residents understood the impact of what was happening at that time and what we need to do to make sure that doesn't happen again. And so thank you for lifting that up. Uh, we talked a little bit about how the numbers of farming have decreased over the years. We know that today just 1.4% of farmers identify as black or mixed race compared to about 14% a hundred years ago. And so could you share more about number one, how the issues, um, Kevin, that you talked about before um, in terms of our history are impacting the, the um, agricultural um, realm today? And then what does it look like to be a farmer today? Because um, I, I, I had a, a call with Tim some time ago when he talked about the fact that um, people don't guess that he's a farmer. So I want to talk a little bit about that as well. The New York Times had a story this week about Black farmers who were promised debt relief through one of the recently passed bills. I think it was the American Rescue Plan. And it had a provision for $4 billion, billion with a B, dollars of debt relief for farmers who had been discriminated by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And what the article was talking about is how that relief is being delayed because white farmers are saying that that provision is discriminatory. And to me, that's an example that goes back to the early republic that Annalisa Cox is talking about is that, so it, it's really in the context of white supremacy that if we think about what white supremacy is, it requires black inferiority for people to continue to believe it. So anytime black people are prospering, it's a threat to that belief. That's what happened to those farmers in the 1790s, 18 teens. And if you look at what's behind, I believe, the USDA's policies over time, while they would give extend credit to white farmers, but black farmers know, I'm not saying they did it explicitly, but it's ingrained in our culture that we don't, black people don't deserve what white people get. That's what happened with those 40 acres and a mule. And so in this, and so you can't even put together a policy to repair that damage without white farmers saying that they're not getting what they deserve. And that, I don't have a solution for that. What the article talked about is uh, the Biden administration continuing to work on it. They say, some farmers say that the, the legislation was poorly drafted. I don't know, but 
it, it it's part of that cycle that when we move ahead, there's a backlash and black farmers who prosper, they get caught in that. Not always, but there's a system that's driving that result then. Thank you. Um, also with that whole process, a lot of it starts with, right now we're down at Riddle, we're on our um, seventh um, agriculture uh, class that we have going on. So it's a five month curriculum that we help people who are interested in agriculture try to uh, put together a business plan no matter what scale, whether it's a backyard garden or them trying to scale up to commercial, uh, the first thing we really start is just the mindset, right? People think they want that 40 acres in a mule, but do you even have the resources to really be able to sustain that thing? And on top of the resources, do you have the relationship? So a lot of us try to go into this thing thinking that we're going to do it by ourselves because it's our passion. So what we try to do is just one set the mindset wrapped around introducing your concept to somebody and then utilizing what's already naturally around you. So inside of the class, we try to start co-ops. So then that way they don't try to tackle a project that's bigger than what they already have already, you know, pressed out in their head. So creating those small tangible touches where before we even try to just go after that 40 acres, what does our yard look like? And just this stability, excuse me, stability of self, like what does my household look like? Then from my household, what does my neighborhood look like? So really trying to share those common concerns amongst each other so they can come together as a collective to tackle a problem, which really starts with finding the resources in the relationships, then being able to go after the revenue because you have a full collective of people that can just play their part. It's a lot for one person to become a farmer, their own marketer, and their person trying to harvest and get the word out to try to just keep producing enough props. So we really just try to shrink that concept of what urban acts look like from a commercial standpoint to a tangible touch. What does that one tangible touch look like moving forward where you can start to collect those things like uh, moving forward, like Dorothy did on the Wizard of Oz. She started her walk and as she started walking, she started finding people that was on the same journey as far as just looking for another version of themselves. So that's the same thing in agriculture. Once you find that one person that's able to step out and find a favor in those footprints to move forward and you start to attract your tribe. And that tribe comes from really just having conversations, being able to collect and exchange resources. I think that's another thing is just sitting down and having a conversation to talk about our, our, our wins and our lessons that we can use to advance and do what that next round looks like. So we don't come to the table asking um, for that bigger piece of the pie and be unprepared. That's why you see so many uh, dilapidated hoop houses and greenhouses throughout the city because a lot of people really didn't have the resources or the relationships to keep those things up. So what we're trying to do is just one, restructure the mindset of people going into agriculture and really slowing it down from a scale system, being able to scale it up, but at the same time, leave room for people to come to the table and help you with your process and matching your process with somebody else's purpose to be able to fully expand and grow. I love it. I love it. I love it. This is, this is what we need to talk about. And along those same lines, um, I think that we need to talk about, and I'd love to hear your perspective on the pipeline in terms of workforce development and bringing young people 
into these conversations. I know that um, we're teaching ourselves and um, recovering some of our legacy and in, in learning about agriculture, but talk about the importance of bringing young people in and what is it going to take to make them or encourage them? We're not making them do anything in 2022. What is it going to take to encourage them to want to um, get into this field? I think one of the first steps is we have to make it look successful. And what I mean by that is, is doing a better job of not wearing our wounds, but understanding through the process, there's work and a commitment level that has to be done because we're competing with rappers, uh, athletes and entertainers. Right. So we tell these kids and you go into these schools and tell these kids they can be whatever they want to be. The last thing they're probably thinking about is being a farmer because of the correlation, the correlation to slavery, picking cotton, even though that's not the only um, spectrum that Blacks are involved in when it comes to agriculture. But like the history lesson that Doc has given us today is helping open up more ways for us to be able to produce a richer history of, we weren't just picking cotton, but we were those people, you know, um, having cattle and crops and creating uh, generational wealth in the earlier stages, but they don't show that type of stuff. So being able to get that knowledge to really be able to start a foundation and a platform to get the kids to make it look successful, not even make it look successful, but show the success in it because the things that they want to acquire, it takes a certain mind state of overstanding. Okay. You might not understand what we're doing now from an agriculture standpoint and how you're going to benefit from it. So just, but once again, shrinking that process down to showing them how it affects them now in their community by the uh, grocery store being the, the family dollar or the gas station in some sense, where you're not even getting produce, you're just going to get something to eat. So being able to show them where's the nearest grocery store. So really showing them where they're infected now and then just showing them the benefits, the benefits of being in relationship with a sustainable stewardship and being able to connect back with the earth, the different um, dopamine levels, how it boosts your, your energy and just your um, esteem by reconnecting in the process of just the mental health, the benefit of being outside, having fresh air, not just being in the house um, attached to a computer, you know? So really just showing the benefits and like I said, the standard of what success looks like, but being honest with them, because I think that's the thing where a lot of times we lost that relationship. We weren't honest about the transition where we're trying to provide, but um, agriculture didn't really look like the most beneficial way to provide for a family because it takes time for those seeds to grow and be able to produce. And we're living in a microwave mentality where kids want it now because they're looking at everything now, especially with everything being instant, instant gratification. So really um, showing them the art form of being able to just commit to a process longer than something that you're putting in the microwave, longer than something that you're just putting in the oven, but really seeing something grow from seed to consumption. So it has to be less conversation and more demonstration going into these schools where they can see, like I said, a successful model and see uh, black farmers and just farmers, period, being able to have those things like an athlete would have, but also being able to see the bigger picture where what you might spend on the Lamborghini, you can go ahead and revitalize half of the community off of. So a financial breakdown on how that really helps in the long run, really um, turn those uh, communities back in the neighborhood by finding what's that one common concern that they all share and being able to be a, a great steward of your community and then the environment. So I think the charges with agriculture, we try to put so much on these kids to try to save the planet, but they can't even save their self and their own household. 
So being able to really start with self, household, community, then environment, once again, just being able to scale those things up so they don't get lost into the bigger picture of what sustainability is. And um, just get back to just being able to connect, commit, and stay consistent. And, and from a historical point of view, using those historical examples to help people understand that for Black people, land ownership was independence. It wasn't perfect, but relative to not owning land, there's a, a level of independence that they had. And so I look at my family, my Uncle Charles, my father's oldest brother, he took us cousins out to that land in the early 1980s and told us the story of it. So we understood it. And then a lot of things made sense to me because he and all of my father's siblings went to college. It wasn't because they were getting rich, but there was a certain level of independence that that land gave them. And I think an expectation of what they could do. And that's not necessarily something you can put a dollar sign on, but it is important. Um, for people to understand. And even now that owning land is important. And so that story, it's not a, it's not unique. Um, there are plenty of others and some of them have it in their own families. They may not know it. And so bringing those stories forward that you can look at those black towns that get started in the 1870s, the exodusters who leave the South and go to Kansas and Oklahoma and set up those towns. Some of them are farming towns, some of them they're doing other things, but they're owning land and that's why they went there. And so that's a legacy that they can build on, but do it in a way for the 21st century. Um, and I think it's a way to, to really get them excited about farming. The other thing too, Doc, to that point is like, when I go out to these schools and even some of these colleges and, and talk to the students, I think that's the one of the biggest components that's missing is what am I connected to? Where do I come from? So uh, trying to figure out why this is even important is probably another thing that they struggle with because they don't even know what they're connected to. So some of that lineage of that legacy that leads them to be great and that sense of ownership is definitely a key component of uh, just encouraging, once again, like I said, that just commitment to want to see something through. And it's not an easy process, but, you know, they know real estate. So even from a real estate standpoint, a lot of them want to be real estate moguls, but don't even understand the concept of just the importance of just stewardship of land. Because the same way my land might be breaking down over here, all these properties and things that you're trying to get involved with because you see the money in it, it's the same process. So being able to show correlation between agriculture and um, real estate development at, a, at its highest level is a good standing point. But just to that point, I just wanted to note that that's where uh, a lot of the kids and students struggle with is just finding out what they're connected to and being able to grow into something and have a sense of pride, you know, moving forward to give them a reason. And I say that's that's more than just the kids. Um, <laughs> I, I, I tell a lot of people that I found and inherited uh, a whole bag of paperwork from my grandmother and my great grandmother and understanding whose shoulders I stand on makes all the difference. 
um, sitting at the computer in meetings via Zoom all day long and going into rooms where you're the only face that looks like yours, but you know that this is my legacy and this is who I am, uh, gives you a different sense of confidence. And so I think that we we may say this in passing for some that are listening on, like, oh, you know, you know where you came from. But like, no, it really means something um, when you're in these fields, um, understanding whose shoulders you stand on. So I appreciate that. I hope y'all are um, taking down all these tidbits. I'm taking notes on my end. I already can't wait to call my mom and tell her, listen, I heard save, I'm sure y'all want me to save the planet and I'm trying to save my street. And so um, that's a word right there. And so <laughs> thank you for that. One last question before I turn it over to my colleague, Jen, who will get questions from the audience. Um, Tim, I heard you talking about wearing our wounds. And a lot of times we want to keep it real with youth and people that may look into going into the um, environmental or agriculture realm. But we also need to make sure we're showing the, the celebrations and the successes. And I also heard you say profit after purpose. So let's yep. get to we're going to get to the money. Let's get to your purpose first. Can we talk about um, even from historical context? We talked about some of the challenges that um, black farmers face. How do we start to address some of those challenges that may have started back in historical, like way back days, and now we're still dealing with the effects today. What are some of the solutions or some of the things that we should start to talk about and consider? I think it's, it's so small that people overlook it. It's just setting the table for the conversation really to be had. You know, I think a lot of times we we come together, but we don't stay consistent in the conversation. So it's, it's, a, it's a one-off conversation that has a lifetime impact. So being able to keep that conversation in the forefront, but just in different phases and stages where the people can really sit down and have a solution based uh, sit down with each other. And I think that's the thing where we need to come solution based um, ready in conversation. But also the important piece of it is, once again, what is that common concern that we share? Not only the common concern, filling each other in on, like I said, some of the lessons that we've learned through the process. And a lot of these things that are affecting us from our past are starting to uh, come to the light. But then how do we really just start to sort the laundry out and process? So really is more so setting up a real structure and a pipeline through conversation, excuse me, and being consistent just in that nature of not letting it be a one off conversation, but truly committing yourself to the conversation where it turns into action plan, because. One thing about farming, you can't just talk about it. It shows up every day. I think COVID really um, gave us a stamp down at Riddle because we were deemed essential before essential was a thing, right? So we still had to show up to pull those weeds, feed those fish, and make, still maintain those crops. So conversation still being followed up by a strong demonstration piece of still showing up, not looking to see who's coming, but letting people know you're available. So when you're ready, because I think the other thing is, is people taking on this big task of where do I fit into the bigger picture? How do I get to the money? Well, what's the what's the position that you want to take on this thing? Is it about the money or is it about the, the problem? Because a lot of times within this um, process and this commitment you're making, you might not even see money for your first 12 years if it's not for a grant 
And we have to be honest with that because of just all the shift and changes in the policies, um, shift and changes in, uh, we don't call volunteers, volunteers at the farm, it's extended family. Being able to provide an extended family with some sustainable resources because it's still balance of household, community and environment. And in order for me to sustain myself, I need to have some type of infrastructure set up where I can bring something to the table besides just the food because I can't pay my light building cabbage. You know what I'm saying? So really being able to have a conversation of consistency and a solution-based mindset where we just don't have a one-off conversation, but we really set it up in phases so we can find that one thing that we can attack because what I've seen over the 12 years that we've been in existence is a lot of people come to the table, but they shoot in their own direction just to come meet back at that same table years later when we could have had a consistent referral and relationship growing throughout those years. So spending that time really being able to get to know one each other through the process, because that's the other thing before we can start to create a cash flow, let's connect and have a real relationship. Let's really understand, are we really here? Even if the money never comes, because that's a reality. Even if I don't get paid in this thing, will I still show up and give it the same attention and need as I would a nine to five? And how do I balance my lifestyle between that nine to five? And I can tell you, honestly, with these days, days and times that we're in agriculture is more so a purpose driven thing because you have to have that thing in you that won't allow you to just quit. I left eight times in agriculture. Because I kept trying to find my purpose. I kept trying to find that thing. Me coming from a marketing and retail background, it was so hard for me to really identify with what I was doing at that farm. But what it did was me studying up under Damien and Dr. Greenhand, it showed me two things. One, as a Black man, I was the first time that I had stepped out of self and understood that I stopped dreaming and I stopped using my imagination to be able to create something for somebody to receive from. So as us being creative and creators, we have to just start with that simple thing of having a conversation, connecting back with ourselves, then understanding the relationship. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's a real statement. So we can't just make it a blanket, cool catchphrase, but have it be a real statement where, yes, if you don't get out there and work, not just a nine to five, but working these plots, working these fields and working these relationships, you won't eat. So. Really, like I said, it's, it's the simplest thing and it's the hardest thing at the same time because sometimes we're fake busy where we don't want to put that time aside to have a conversation because we feel like the problem is bigger than what that one thing we can start to work on as a solution to roll out. So really just coming to the table and finding that one common thing we can throw on the table, then commit to each other showing up to show that consistency, then we can roll that relationship into some revenue. So us not getting out of the habit of meeting is a big process, you know, and meeting where even if the meeting leads to another meeting, but having a draw point where, okay, we don't have to put some action out there now. And with this agriculture thing is, is one of the simplest things to meet and put some action while you're pulling weeds, while you're planting seeds. So you can see once again, a tangible touch where you can shrink the process of what agriculture looks like from a higher standpoint. And I, I would say history has a, a role in this. Um, Crystal, picking up on what you were saying about us learning our own history, we can do that and use it to teach others. Because I suspect that 
there are some white farmers who think black farmers are new to the party. And the reason why Annalisa Cox's book is so important is when you look at these black farmers in the 1780s in the Midwest, before the Irish are ever in this country, prospering, we're not new to this. And understanding that can be an important tool, not just for black people, but for white people too, because there's always a way that black people's Americanness is being challenged as if we're new. And if you just look at the history, the transatlantic slave trade stopped in 1808. If we could, most of us could probably trace our heritage in this land to the 1600s. And so when you look at that, what were we doing? We were farming. <laughs> and so this is not new for us. They may have pushed us out in different ways, but there are other people who persevered. And even those who, so my grandfather, when, when the family moved to Fairfield, Alabama, I remember that backyard always had corn in it. And it was sweet corn. And once I understood that history, I understood why he was continuing that legacy. And so we're not new to this. And all all Americans need to understand that. Thank you, thank you. Um, I'm passing over to my colleague, Jen, who's gonna pose a couple of questions from the audience. I know we don't have much time, but we can, um, we've also been answering a lot of the questions throughout the com conversation. I was receiving them and asking them as well. And so hopefully your question will get answered, but I'll pass it over to Jen. Yeah, such a great conversation. Lots of back and forth um, in the chat. Lots of shout outs for a lot of the points that are made. So um, thanks to everybody for getting engaged. Um, we have a bunch of questions. I think I'll start with one um, that's more of a history question um, for you, Kevin. And that's asking about the Great Migration. Um, and this person asked specifically what kind of impact that had on um, on farmers, um, particularly black farmers who might've been leaving the South and moving North to um, a lot of the Midwest cities. Any thoughts on that? Yes, so the Great Migration. So until 1900, 90% of black people lived in the South. And the Great Migration is when that really changes dramatically. Um, many of them are not able to keep those farming traditions in the North because there just wasn't the land availability. But when you look at why it happens, um, terror is behind it, racial terror. <laughs> and so they were making good decisions in some cases to save their lives <laughs> and leaving. Um, but everybody didn't leave though. And that's the story that tends to be forgotten. So like I said, my family was in Alabama. They stayed, others did too. So a lot of people moved but a lot of people stayed. And so that farm loss, I would say, if you really drill down, is probably due more to unscrupulous situations, people's land being taken, sometimes in families, people not providing for transferring land, much more than the migration, I would say. Um, 
We have another question for someone uh, who notes that they work for a really big global bank um, and they're working on using sustainable finance to inspire regenerative ag practices. That's a mouthful. Uh, the question is, you know, what concerns are more pressing or unique to black farmers that would be assisted by finance? And you know, I'd argue possibly, you know, the, the public sector or the financial sector. I don't know if um, Tim or Kevin, both of you might have perspectives on that. You got something, Doc? Okay, I mean, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be honest. It's, it's more so the, the pressing issue is, is educating the people first before they get the finances. Because what we're doing is we're grabbing things that we really don't have the resources or the information to really sustain. So, from a, a perspective of them being able to come in and help, it's more so um, funding more educated based. Uh, workshops and um, training facilities. I'm not training facilities, but trainings wrapped around agriculture and how to be able to build and scale up. Uh, that's our biggest fight right now is just getting people the information so they don't just take uh, grant money or money they might get from the USDA and run off, put the hoop house and greenhouse up, but never put in any um, crops because they didn't think that this task was going to really command or demand that much of their time. So from that structure and that standpoint of them being able to come in and help, being able to fund and help uh, offer scholarships, you know, through other agricultural programs that are wrapped around just the education, then we can add the financial uh, components to which we also have at Red All Green Partnership. So if they want to spend some money, we know what to do with it for sure. And we can put it to work. So it's more so I would just say, honestly, more workshops uh, wrapped around the, um, agriculture and just how to really be able to identify a good piece of property, then be able to scale it up and to actually put the structure on it. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that if I can. We, um, in water advocacy, we talk a lot about best management practices to reduce agricultural runoff and to protect and preserve our water. We know that there are, there are lots of new pieces of fancy equipment that farmers could be using to um, better tend to their land and also reduce agricultural output or pollution output. Um, but like Tim was just saying, you're not gonna buy this big piece of equipment if you don't know how to use it. And you're not absolutely certain about what um, the impact is gonna be to the land that you've been working on. And so just the, the education to not only the farmers, but the communities around the farmers, because that's a collective. They, they don't work alone. We don't work alone. It's a community. But then also that education so that if I do buy this equipment, I now know how to use it and I know what to expect. And I know when you should be expecting, we should expect some return on that investment as well, I think is really important. Yeah, and I think there's, um, we're running out of time here, but there's a lot of energy in the questions um, around, I think, Tim, what you were just getting at, right, is is how can, you know, people asking and I think doing some really good thinking, and hopefully we'll continue after this webinar about how people, we can, people can be connectors, right, to help connect them to resources and other experts in the field, build collaboratives around, you know, equipment or knowledge or whatever, Um uh, you know, what a takeaway here is uh, what you just said, Crystal, this is a, a community, not just, uh, you know, somebody out by themselves. Thank you for listening. 
You'll find links to a few of the resources mentioned in our conversation, as well as information about our panelists on our website, greatlakes.org slash lakeschat. We hope you'll check it out and learn more. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you'll know when the next episode drops. Talk to you next week.